chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. If you would be, it would be better for you, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. This is a very harsh statement. <laughs> Remember, millstones are these giant, well, they come in all different sizes, but it is like the Flintstones Pampered Chef collection, okay? And it's this round circular stone thing with a hole in it. And you take it and you roll it back and forth and grind it. And then and if you're really wealthy, you have a big one and you tie it to a donkey. Everybody else, the 99% of everybody else, puts it in their hands and they just go back and forth all the day and build like arms of steel. Okay? And so it's a grinding stone. And we, you've, if you've ever picked up, if you've ever like picked up large circular stones or square stones when you're paving your backyard or something like that, they're heavy. And if you tie, or if you've ever seen a mafia movies where they tie the the cinder block, this is like a cinder block, or probably even heavier. It's well, it's heavier than that. Cinder blocks are hollow, um, so it's heavier than that. And what Jesus is saying is, it would be better for you, Pharisees, to tie this thing around your neck, all mafia style, neck, not the ankles, and jump into a river and drown yourself to death, than to mislead another one of these people through your corrupt teachings. This shows you how Christ really feels about them. Now, does he love them all to the point that he's still willing to die on the cross for them and would love nothing more than them to come to him and receive eternal life and be forgiven, be transformed by the Spirit of God? Yes. But is there also a you reap what you sow? And that they have done more damage to more people and made more people suffer the judgment of God through their false teaching than anything that could happen to them? Yes. This is kingdom economics. This is kingdom economics. It is better for you to be dead as a false teacher than for you to continually kill the souls of all these, the, the spirits of all these people and leave them to somewhere else. Not only are you not investing in these people for their own sake and betterment, but you're withdrawing life from them. As my principal always says, when you leave people, do you leave them better off than what you found them? Or are they more drained because of your withdrawal from their life? Now, yes, there will be times where I withdraw from my friends and my spouses because it's been a really bad day or week. But we know those are temporary exceptional things. But there are other times that they're withdrawing from me and I'm investing in them when they're having crappy bad days. Like, but we know the difference between that and a constant withdrawal from people for the sake of our own comfort, our own esteem. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is kingdom economics. If you withdraw from other people, Christ will withdraw from you. We cannot forget the both sides of Jesus. It's very tempting in this culture, but Jesus is my friend. And he's all lovey-dovey. And he has the little children come to him. And he forgives the woman who was caught in adultery and in the tax collector. And it's like, yes, 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 yes. But those were people who were wounded and operating out of their wounds. And they were broken and they were blind and they were lost and they were miserable. And they were sinning, but they were lost. 
These are people with power who know exactly what they're doing, and they're feeding like leeches off of these other people, and they know what they're doing. And there's a difference between the two. And depending on whether you're the lost, confused, broken, dysfunctional person who's sinning versus the person who is leeching off and manipulating and sucking people dry depends on what side of Christ you get. I'm not trying to reduce him to two sides of the coin. He's way more complicated than that. But analogies only stand on three legs. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Even if he sins against you seven times a day and seven times returns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So now Jesus goes to the other point. So he's made the point like you harsh, evil people who withdraw from people constantly all the time for your own gain and your own contentment and comfort. It's better for you to be dead than be alive. For those of you who are harsh and cruel and have laid these burdens on people that overwhelm them so much that they have to live up to this expectation in order to feel like they're loved and accepted by you and God in order to earn his love and forgiveness and redemption, then you are condemned. But for people who see their brokenness, and they may not be always genuinely, like the alcoholic is like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again. You're like, oh my gosh, I've heard that a million times. But there's still something in them that they know that's not right. And they're trapped in addictions, and addictions are complicated, and addictions are multi-layered, and addictions are powerful. And it doesn't matter how many times, at least they get that they're broken at least that they realize they're wrong, and at least there's something in them that wants to be a better person, and at least there's something in them that doesn't want to use you. It doesn't want to constantly withdraw from you. Forgive them. Forgive them. And this is the clear delineation that's not about behavior, it's about heart motives. Now, don't get me wrong, it is about behavior. There should be... The alcoholic who does this all the time, who eventually becomes saved and eventually gets their act together, or the sex addict, or the gossip addict, or the whatever addict, there, there's always consequences for them. And Christ never excuses you from consequences. He walks with you through the consequences, but he never protects you from consequences. But there is no judgment. There is no judgment. And that's the tension we must hold. There is no condemnation or judgment or condemning them or getting your pound of flesh. But there is, you're going to have to reap what you sow, but I will be there with you. And this is the point that Jesus is making. When they ask for forgiveness, no matter how many times they do it, no matter how many times you're like, they don't really mean it this time because they didn't mean it last time, forgive them, forgive them. Even if it's seven times returns. Now he'll go on and say later, 70 times seven. The point is not to crunch the numbers. Seven is the symbol of completion. You do it until it's complete, until they're forgiven. The, the famous line in our house is, how many times do we have to do this? How many times do I have to tell you this? How many times do we have to go through this? And my wife's answer always is, all of them. And that's what we tell each other all the time. We get fresh with all of them. I'm like, oh, yes. Because God does the same thing with us. The same thing with us. How many times must he have to forgive us? All of them. How many times does he have to remind us? All of them. And this is what Jesus is saying. All of them. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. 
So the Lord replied, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this black mulberry tree, Be pulled up out of the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is saying, You don't need more faith. You just need faith in the right object. This is the point that Hebrews is making. I know it's been a long time since I've taught on Hebrews. But there's that great hall of faith, chapter 11 in Hebrews. And a lot of people interpret it. These are amazing people of faith. And they did great things of faith. And this person, Abraham was amazing. And Gideon was amazing. And then they're always shocked when we go through those stories. And they're like, wow, Abraham was kind of a scumbag to his wife. And oh, wow, Gideon skinned people alive. And, and then, then he like built an idol. And then he put the idol on his chest. And everybody began to bow down to the idol, which means they're bowing down to him. And, and then he raised a son that was my father is king. And, and then in Samson, oh my gosh, he was a narcissistic sex addict. And you're like, but they're in the Bible. And it says they're great people of faith. Oh, they're great people of faith. And we don't know what to do with that. So we just go back to our Sunday schoolism. No offense to Sunday school teachers. I was a Sunday school teacher. But the problem is, that's not the whole point of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 through 10 just got done arguing that Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to the priesthood. Christ is superior to the law. Christ is superior to the tabernacle. Christ is superior to everything. And the point is that the greater thing has now come and arrived. That long ago he spoke through prophets and dreams and angels, but today he speaks through his son. And then he gets to chapter 11 and he says, by faith, Abraham. He doesn't say Abraham was an amazing person of faith. He doesn't say that Gideon was an amazing person of faith. He says, by faith. Was Abraham a scumbag? Yes. But did he do some things in faith? Yes. Was Gideon a scumbag? Yes. But did he at least have faith to tear down the altar, even though he did it at night with the help of a bunch of people like he wasn't supposed to? Yes. But did he at least do it? Yes. Is your friend repenting for the 50 millionth time? Yes. But at least they're doing it, right? Did Samson pray for God to give him revenge for his own eyes? Yes. But at least he humbled himself and requested from God this time than he did at the spring. Okay? The point is that when they demonstrated faith, God did amazing things in their life. And what the point he's making is, if they had faith in those things back then, and God was able to do amazing things, then how much more will God be able to do amazing things when you put your faith in the ultimate object? Jesus Christ. If Christ is superior to all these things, then the faith that you have in him will produce superior results. And this is what Jesus is saying. You don't need more faith. You just need to orient it towards the right object. And if you truly place it in Christ, then Christ will be able to do anything. Now, this isn't like a West Virginia snake handling thing, too. We're like, whoa, now, okay. Then I can say, move, and the tree's like, <sighs> and you're like, oh, if you can't do that, you're not a real Christian, or you don't really have the Holy Spirit in you. I believe that faith can do that. I believe very much in laying on hands. I believe very much in miraculous powers. I believe in speaking in tongues done the right, right way. I believe in visions and dreams. But I don't believe in now. Because the object of that one is you. It's like there's this song where they talk about, oh, God, you have the power to do this. And, da, 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 da. 
And then it says, now I can make the storms stand still. And I can, it's like, no, you had it right in the first part of the song. But then just because Christ is in you doesn't mean I can command. It even says I can command. When I open my mouth, miracles come out. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's the object. The object. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Remember Peter? On the water, right? Was the storm raging when he was in the boat? Yes. Was the storm raging when he got out of the boat? Was the storm raging when he was walking on the water? Was the storm raging when he was sinking in the water? Was the storm raging when Jesus like threw him by the scuff of his neck back into the boat? That's how I envision it. <laughs> okay? Yes, right? Why did he sink and why did he not? This focus. And for me, that's a powerful illustration. The circumstances never changed in his life. What he was looking at is what changed. And this is the point that Christ is making. You don't need more faith. You just need to focus on the thing that you already know. And with faith like a child, children don't have more faith. They don't have a greater theology. What they do have is an, a tractor being focused on you as their parent until they grow up and realize we're all flawed. But it's how you handle that revelation that they have that determines whether they stay with you or not. This is the point that Christ is making. And how do we do that? Meditate on the Word of God day and night. Be in the Word. Hang out with Him. If I don't hang out with my wife on a daily basis, we are going to lose connection. Oftentimes what is true in the flesh is also true in the spiritual realm. And God and Paul often go back, and Jesus go back to the flesh, the principles of the world, the principle of the human body and how it works to make spiritual points. And it should make sense because he's the author of both. He's not going to create a different economics for the body than he creates for the spiritual realm. We're too dumb to make the conversion rates. We need straight-to-straight -straight comparisons. Would any of you, verse 7... Say to your slave who comes in from the field after plowing or shepherding the sheep, come in at once and sit down for a meal. Won't the master instead say to him, get my dinner ready and make yourself ready to serve me a while. I eat and drink, and then you may eat and drink. And he won't thank the slave because he did what he was told, will he? So you too, when you have done everything you were commanded to do, should say, we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We have only done what is our duty. Don't misunderstand this. Once again, Jesus is not saying, you're all my slaves, and I should never have to thank you, and you should just come in and do what is expected of you. That is not at all the character that he's demonstrated. The point is, the Pharisees think that way. Pharisees are doing things to win merit. They're serving their master in heaven, and they're only doing it because they want God to say, well done. Okay, now you deserve to come to the kingdom of God because you did this and this and this and you helped that little lady over here and you gave alms over here and you taught English as a second language to this little child. And, and that's their motive. Their motive is they're doing all, they're serving for merit. It's the, 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 the oldest son who stayed behind. 
He, he's just working. His dad is a mean, cruel slave master, and he's only working for his dad because he's going to get it the right way so that nobody looks at him like his little brother, and he'll get the inheritance, and everybody will say, well done, good and dutiful son. You're not like your scumbag brother over there. You towed the rope and did everything you were supposed to, and now you get it. You're such a good person. That's why he served his father, not because he loved him, not because he couldn't think of, how can I help you? And the point is, Jesus is saying is, look, I'm not speaking to everybody and saying this is exactly how God is. I'm saying, don't think, you Pharisees, that you're going to get a pat on the head and rewarded just because you were served and obedient. Masters don't do that with slaves. You think of yourself as a slave. And if you think of yourself as a slave and you work like a slave for God, then why would you expect God to treat you different than a master treats a slave? Why would the master thank you? Why would the master say, oh, I couldn't have done this without you. I'm going to give you all these rewards and all this kind of stuff. Come, sit in my, sit in my favorite chair. Masters don't do that in real life. He's just helping them make the comparison. If you serve God like he's like that, why would you expect God to act in this kind of a way? And the point is that you don't do it because you're expected to. You do it because you want to love God. And if you love God because he's a good God and a loving God, and, and I want to please him, regardless of the reward I'll get, I just want to know him. The reward is knowing him. The reward is seeing him work in my life. The reward is being connected to him. The reward is other people getting to experience the same thing that I'm getting to experience with him. That's why I'm doing it. Then you will have a God who will say, well done and good and faithful servant. Because Jesus will say that, and he told you he would say that. You have a God that will say, sit at my right hand. A God that will give you greater talents and greater rewards. You must put these things in the greater context of the Gospels. And the Gospels have made it very clear that this is the kind of father he is. But he's speaking in a for sake of argument kind of a way with the Pharisees. And saying, you act like you're a slave. Why do you think that I will, God will act like a loving father if you view him as a slave? This is the point. If you serve God like he's a slave master, then don't expect a loving father. If you serve him as a loving father who you want nothing more to be with, then maybe the opposite could be to say, then don't think that he's going to treat you like a slave master. Because sometimes we fear God is going to treat us like a slave and his judgments. And the point is, what are you investing in? How do you view your master? Yes, the whole point the Bible is making is that when you accept Christ, you're transferring your allegiance from one master to another master. Becoming a Christian does not give you freedom to become your own boss and do whatever you want and live your life how you want. A lot of people think that. Oh, I'm free now. Libertarianism. To live my own life and do what I want and how I please because now I'm saved. That's not the point. The Bible makes it very clear that when God freed them from their slave master, Pharaoh, he re-enslaved them to a new slave master, God in the wilderness with the law. The difference is that this slave master loves you and pursues you and is willing to die on the cross for you in order to save you. But what you must understand is that you are still expected to serve him. 
you're still expected to obey his law. You're expected to serve in his kingdom. So the question now is, in this kingdom economics, do you see him as a cruel slave master that you're going to work the system in order to gain your own power and your own kingdom and that you're going to withdraw from people constantly to have your own comfort? Or do you see this as an incredible loving slave master who died for you and was whipped and scourged for you so that you wouldn't have to? Who has done far more than anything that he's ever expected from you and wants to reward you and bless you. And the same way that he invests in you to give you life and joy to the fullest, he wants you to turn around and do that to other people because you genuinely care about them. So which one are you going to invest in? The master that you obey because you feel like you have to, but you're really secretly building your own kingdom at the expense of everything else for your own comfort? Or the master that truly loves you and died, sacrificed everything for you, and that you can't help but want to please him and love him and know him and the people that he also cares about so that you can be a part of the blessings of knowing him for all eternity? Because whatever one you invest in, that's what you're going to reap. And when the day comes for withdrawal, there is no changing your mind. Nor would anybody like that really truly change their mind. This is kingdom economics. We know this intellectually, and I know that many of us are passionate towards God, incredibly devoted to him, but we still need to hear this. 